good to see you all this morning. How are we all doing? doing pretty good? Okay, good. Kind of packed in here like sardines this morning. Um, and last time we were in the Gladstone, I, I, I thanked you all for, for being willing to be flexible. Obviously, this is part of our identity um, as a group that, uh, that doesn't have a, an established building. Uh, we recognize that frequently we have, to, we have to be displaced, and that's okay. That's okay because we recognize that the church is not, uh, not a building, but the people of God. Um, so, whoa, hey, a little hot. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, good. Good? Am I blowing everybody out? Can you hear me in the back? Thumbs up. Great. Okay, perfect. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, considering where we've been since we've been doing Sunday mornings together, we have been um, studying primarily some passages in the New Testament related to what it looks like to be the church. So we started in Philippians. We started with, in last October, we started in Philippians. We started talking about what it means to be gospel partners, what that means to be together and to live together as the people of God and to endure together. Um, and then secondly, uh, we, we sort of, we ran into a couple places, primarily these are, these are the big overarching themes that we touched on. We also thought about the I am statements of Jesus and how Jesus, um, how Jesus uh, spoke to those who he engaged in his world and, who, and how he demonstrated to others who he is. And then, and then finally, in the springtime, we talked about 1 Thessalonians in uh, reconstructing our idea of what church looks like. So those are kind of the big sort of, uh, sort of series, sermon series that we've been in together. So those, those primarily come out of the New Testament. They've come out of Paul's epistles, and they've also come out of, of, uh, of uh, the Gospels. So this morning, we, we want to get back into the Old Testament. We want to move backwards a bit. Um, and something that we don't do frequently enough, I think, as a people, as the church, is get back into the Old Testament and consider what's going on there. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to actually go to the book of Lamentations, which, which seems like a strange place to be. And I hope that you're not depressed as soon as I said that. Um, but but, but maybe, maybe some of you aren't even familiar with this book. So if you kind of like open your Bible right to the middle of it, if, you're, if you don't have a digital copy and can't just look at your... Or you could go to your table of contents. But you open it sort of like right to the middle, you're going to see a big book called Jeremiah. And Lamentations is right after Jeremiah. So this has kind of been a process for me in this book, and I've been thinking about this book for a long time, and, and I, I sort of like kept going back in my mind and thinking to myself, am I crazy for wanting to preach out of here? Because this is this is not a book that gets touched very often. How many of you have heard a sermon preached out of the book of Lamentations before? Two, three, four, maybe four, okay, five, six, good, okay, cool. All right, so some of you. But we're gonna we're gonna go here because because this is important. We we see this whole book as the inspired word of God, not just the New Testament, not just the portions that we like to read or to throw on a throw pillow and put on our couch. Um, but we see the whole thing as the inspired word of God, and so what we want to do is study it together and consider what God is speaking to us about who He is, and then in light of that, who we are as a people. So, again, it might not look like it make, make a lot of sense at, at first glance, but, but this book is, is, is fundamental to our understanding of, of who God is, and it drives home some, some really important things, right? And, and one thing that we're going to talk about a lot as we go through the five books in this, or the five chapters in this book, it's actually like arranged into five poems, and we're going to talk a lot about God's boundless commitment to the restoration of his people. 
And it's something that, that at first glance might not, might not be apparent to us, but I hope that this becomes um, something that makes a lot of sense as we move through the book. So, so let's consider the book just for a moment and like sort of uh, the ongoing, what's, what's happening in, in the nation of Israel um, when we get to the book of Lamentations. So it's largely thought that, that this book was written by Jeremiah after the book of Jeremiah. Um, so he was recording uh, the devastation of Jerusalem. And he's actually mourning and grieving that. That happened in 587 BC. And so he's, he's looking across the landscape and mourning the devastation of, of Jerusalem in 587. So like I said, it's actually these five poems that are, that are actually more like, it's, it's not like you write in your diary when something bad happens. It's a little bit more formal, right? He sat down and he, he over the course of some years, processed what happened and then sat down and wrote these poems um, as a result of that process. It was like a formal expression of grief uh, for the destruction of, of Jerusalem. So first, it's not an emotional outpouring, but we see that as we go through it, it's going to be in a few places, it's going to feel a little scattered, but we'll see um, that the nature of the book gives us an understanding that Jeremiah is still processing this, this fundamental event that happened in, in his world. So let's read this first chapter together. Let's read this together, and then we will dive in and consider a few things specifically from the text. Okay. This is Lamentations chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She's become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces, has become a forced labor. She weeps bitterly in the night, and, she, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. Among all her lovers, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. And her pursuers have overtaken her. In the midst of distress, the rose of Zion are in mourning, because no one comes to the appointed feast. And her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. And she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture. And they, still, and they have <coughs> fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and the homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the adversary and no one helped her, the adversary saw her. They mocked at her ruin. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself grows and turns away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts and she did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter in her sanctuary. The ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregation, all her people grown, seeking bread. They have, been, they have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. 
It is, is it nothing to all you who pass by this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out of me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anchor. From on high he set fire into my bones, and it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate, faint all day long. The yoke of my transgression is bound. By his hand they are knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretched out her hands. There is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that the ones round about him should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Hear now, all people, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city when they sought food to restore their strength themselves. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me. For I have been very rebellious in the street. The sword slays the house. It is like death. They have heard that I groan. There is no one to comfort me. And my enemies have heard my calamity. They are glad that you have done it. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed. That they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. And deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions, for my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Okay, so that's a lot of text. Um, and before you all get really depressed, let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, God, we thank you again that we can come to your word, we can turn to it, we can see you working in it in our lives. Lord God, I pray that now, as we looked at this text that's a little bit difficult, it seems a little bit strange, Lord, I pray that you would, that our, that you would transform our minds to see, see what you intend to accomplish this morning in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so like we do every week, we read this text and then we think a little bit about a big idea together. We think about the primary thrust of what's going on in this text. And so this morning, the big idea is simply this. The devastation of Jerusalem points us to God's unwavering commitment to restore his people. Again, the devastation of Jerusalem points us to God's unwavering commitment to restore his people. We won't, we're going to flesh that out in its entirety. But before that, I want to point out some things that are actually going on here in Lamentations 1 that are helpful for us as we move to some takeaways this morning. So there are really two portions of this poem. Okay, so there are two portions in Lamentations 1 in this poem, and we see the first portion between verses 1 through 11, and this is just a, a, a straight-up recounting of what happened, a straight-up recounting of what happened uh, to Jerusalem, um, the devastation, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the second half of verse 11, you'll actually see some quotation marks and actually sort of a shift in tone. 
a shift in tone. Um, in, in the second half of verse 11, see where it says, See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Um, it's a call for God to look, um, and that carries us through the end of this chapter. This transition is sort of this creative expression of what Jerusalem um, is actually speaking. It's actually sort of like this anthropomorphization. Did I say that correctly? No, but that's okay. You know what I mean. Um, where Jerusalem becomes a uh, becomes actually like an active participant in this and starts speaking from the perspective of of Jerusalem, asking God to grant. Relief. So there really are two things here then that, that flow out of this. One, the first half of the chapter, the devastation of Jerusalem, and then the second, this request in light of the devastation of Jerusalem um, for, uh, to, for relief from the things that are contained within it. So let's talk then about the first 11 verses and then briefly the, the, next, uh, the next 11. Um, and we'll see here as we move through this that, that a few things come into clear focus for us. Right, and I think that there are three things that Jeremiah is expressing to us as we look at this, this text, right? And I'm going to give you these three in turn. We're going to talk a little bit about the language that, that leads us there, um, and we'll, we, then we'll move into um, the takeaways. So first of all, the isolation that Jerusalem feels. The isolation that Jerusalem feels. If you look in verse 1, I'm just going to run through a few verses here and just keep this in front of you. Keep looking at it in front of you. Um, in verse 1, we just see simply the, the very opening word here is how lonely sits the city. The city is in complete and utter isolation, right? And if you just move to verse 2, you see isolation. This theme continued, right? There are none to comfort her. She's in isolation. In verse 4, the roads mourn and the festivals are not attended. If you know anything about Jewish culture, festivals are a huge part of what they do. And the festivals, they are, they are not attended. And then in verse 7, if you look at verse 7, you see this, uh, that Jeremiah evokes this idea of homelessness. In verse 7, in the days of her affliction and homelessness, a city that's homeless, that, that's that. That, that raises some significant imagery in our minds. And then your, your Bible might say that they're wandering, um, that she's, she is cast out. That's the idea that's, that, that is being communicated here. And this is a clear, clearly what Jeremiah is saying is that this is an unnatural state for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a vibrant city that exists in a vibrant part of the world in this time period. Um, and it is clearly an unnatural state for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was well thought of for much of Israel's history amongst the nations. And Jerusalem is this holy city, this central city for God's people. And it is meant to be inhabited, but it has been vacated. Okay, so we see then the isolation language contained here. The second one is simply oppression, right? Isolation and then oppression. Look back at verse 1. There's oppression here. Um, we see the idea of forced labor, or your Bible might say slavery, at the end of verse 1. In verse 3, we see hard servitude, or maybe harsh servitude. This idea of being oppressed, being bound to something. And then in verse 5, foes have become the head, right? The enemies of Jerusalem have become the head. 
they, they are prospering over Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, the foes, they gloated over her. Verse 9, the enemies have become triumphant. Verse 11, uh, they are trading their treasures for bread. That is a place that you find yourself if you're being oppressed, right? That is a place that you, that you, would, you would trade your treasures for bread when you're, being, uh, when you're being oppressed. And if you look throughout the course of the entire chapter, you see the word affliction being used over and over and over again. And the city has been overtaken by Babylon, and the people were carried away, and so they're being oppressed in a foreign land, and the city, as a result of the people being carried away, is also equally being oppressed. But notice the affliction that is coming through the Babylonians, but ultimately God is the actor. Babylon is God's chosen means here. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions, because of the sin of the people. God has chosen to use Babylon to afflict his people. The enemies have become the head, and they prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. Babylon is God's tool to carry out his purposes for his people. And ultimately, again, this sounds depressing, but this is good news. This is good news. We'll get there. I promise. Okay, so we have this isolation. We have this oppression. And then finally, this, this idea of restlessness. This idea that Jerusalem is restless. Look in verse 3. Judah has gone into exile and her affliction and her harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. She has found no rest. Look at verse 6 with me. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like deer. They have found no pasture. A deer's home is the pasture. They have found no pasture. And they have fled without strength before the pursuer. Look at verse 8 and 11. We both see in both of these, these verses, right? We see that Jerusalem has sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honor her because or despise her because they've seen her nakedness, even she herself groans and turns away. Groaning carries this idea of restlessness. And then in verse 11, we see that same language being used. All her people groan, seeking bread. All her people groan, seeking bread. And the people are broken by their sin, right? We know that this is a result of their transgression, that they've committed against, the, against God. They've ignored His law. They've been carried away from their home, and they've become strangers in a strange land, and this is the heart of restlessness. When you don't feel like you're at home, this is the heart of restlessness. Okay, let me, let me, let me tell you the story. Three, three, three things this week that happened to me. One, um, I've had a MacBook for about six years. Six years went down this week. Um, it's fine. <laughs> it was a little painful. Like there was actually like a grieving process there. Rebecca and I were talking about that. There was actually like this carried us a long ways, and it felt like it, it felt strange. So someone here was, was gracious enough to let me use a, a computer 
also. So I sat down, I started getting everything prepared on it, getting all my work back up, uh, getting ready to, plugged it in, got it all going, fired up, and that one went down. Hard drive problem, corrupt file, something, something. I don't know what it all means. And I, I was like, okay, what? What's going on? And then on Wednesday, on Wednesday, Mark then graciously said, here, use this laptop. Um, and Rebecca took the boys to, to the doctor to get flu shots and for Ted to have his, his two-year-old appointment. Said, here, use this laptop. Okay, thank you. So I had Juliet, and I had her in my office, and I just set her down, and she was like sleeping. And I put the computer down, and then I went to, she started crying, and I picked her up, and I went to set it on the, and it tumbled off. And I was like, oh, no problem. Took Juliet upstairs, when Rebecca got home, came back, opened up, busted the, the screen. Couldn't see anything. And I was just like, what is going on in my world? Like, what is going on? I, I was, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, and, and, and here's, here's where I'm at. This is, this is the, this is the time. For me as a person, okay, like I'm a really goal-oriented, like, like Mark knows, I love agendas. It's just like throwing agendas at people and that would be which way. And I like to have my workflow, and my workflow had been established with this MacBook for six years. And a workflow. Everything was where I wanted it. It all looked the way that I wanted it. I sat down and did everything that I wanted to do whenever I sat down. And, and this is the idea, right? My workflow then, that is so important to me, feeling peace and at home and at rest, was all of a sudden disrupted three times in one week. And it was so frustrating. And, and ultimately, this exposes me as a person and some things that I need to be processing and working through in myself. And I think that's the point of why it happened. I think God was like, hey, your peace, you're finding your peace in your workflow, and you should be finding it in me. That's a, that's a hard realization to come to. But peace with God has been granted to me in Jesus, and whatever thing or thing I don't have to work on, it doesn't matter. But it ultimately disrupted me, and it's God reminding me just consistently that, that what I'm doing is not a result of who I am, but who He is. It's not my workplace or, workplace or work flow. But the point stands, my home position, right? My home position for work was taken away from me. It was, it was removed from me. And this is kind of, in effect, what's going on with Jerusalem, right? They have, the people of God have been removed from their home, and they felt restless. That's what Jeremiah is expressing. They felt restless. And we'll come back to this a little bit later. But, but let just, just make a mental note of that idea of restlessness. But let's look at the second half of the chapter quickly here and just, just, just observe a few things briefly. The second half is this request for relief from the isolation and the oppression and the restlessness that Jeremiah is feeling as he's processing the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and Jeremiah, so he uses this device and speaks as if he were Jerusalem herself. Look at verse 11b. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. See, O Lord, and look. He's just asking, like, just look, God, just look and see. Just look and see my state. And then in verse 12, we're just going to walk through this quickly. 
in verse 12. Is it nothing to you that all pass by? Is it nothing to you all who pass by and look this way? All of the, all of the cities, all of the nations that, that Jerusalem thought to be her allies, they look and they just move on. It's sort of asking, it's sort of asking this question that I think sometimes we ask in our world, God, where are you? God, where are you? Where are you in this? And look, it's the most intense sorrow. Look and see if there is any pain like my pain. Is there any pain like my pain? And we see that God, that again, is the actor and the afflictor in verse 12, which is the Lord inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. Then sort of as we move then through verses 13 through 15, then into 16 and 17, we'll, we'll touch on all of these. Into verse 16 and 17, this is why mourning is necessary in verse 16. For the things, and for these things I weep, my, my eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter. This is why mourning is necessary because far from me is a comforter. One who restores my soul, my children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. And in verse 17, right, that God has stretched out his, or that Zion has stretched out his hand and no one is there to answer the call. <coughs> All of those who are around Jerusalem become adversaries. In verse 18, the Lord is righteous. But ultimately, this is key. This is a rebellion against His command. Your Bible might say word. It's probably a better translation. The, 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 the Lord, um, oh, I'm sorry, the, for I have Jerusalem, I have rebelled against his word. God is righteous. God is right, both right and righteous. He is both just and the justifier. You sent the, to the people, the prophets, his word, and it was rejected, and now they find themselves here. A rejection of God's proclamation of restoration. Verse 19, then, all earthly allies were available again. This ongoing grief is picked up in verses 21 and, or 20 and 21, where we see this language that's like, it's actually like this emotional turmoil. For I am in distress, my spirit is greatly troubled, my heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. This is though the whole being is expressing turmoil. And then in verse 22, the final verse in the chapter, a call for the evil committed against Jerusalem to be avenged in the same way that God dealt with Jerusalem because of her sin. Just saying, hey, look at what has been done to me. Deal with my enemies in this way. We see again in verse, at the end of verse 22 that, that groaning. Okay, so where is this all taking us? Where is this all taking us, right? Because we've looked now, we see this depressing portrait of this destroyed city sitting amongst the nations of which she has no friends. And this is what I want to take away from, a, from this first this morning. The first thing is simply this, is kind of just the tag for this whole sermon series. God's commitment to restoring his people to himself is boundless. God's commitment to restoring his people to himself 
is boundless. God has afflicted his people here and removed them from their home, caused their enemies to triumph over them and oppress them in order to restore them. And again, I said earlier, this is good news. It doesn't sound like good news, but I promise you it's good news. The people's main issue was their sin, their ongoing reliance on themselves to carry out what was best for them. And what, what they needed to be saying is, who is God and how is, does he have our best in mind? We see this throughout all of redemptive history that God course corrects this mentality in his people. And he does it through the destruction of cities. That is not a means that is outside of God's sort of parameters to course correct his people. And the ultimate course correction, this is the good news, the ultimate course correction is Jesus. This is the takeaway from this passage. The ultimate course correction for his people is Jesus. Think with me, we, we talked about this verse, I don't know, because it's been a while, but think with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you think, do you think, do you think that God's call is limited? Do you think that God's call on your life is limited? So limited that he would not go to the greatest end possible to bring you back to himself. You think that God has not gone to the most extreme lengths to restore us as his people? What does a restoration look like? What does that mean? What is restoration? God created us for a purpose. God created us for a purpose. And we ask this question a lot. There's been a lot of ink spilt about what our purpose is in this world. But our ultimate purpose is to know God. Like the video said this morning, to know God and to bring Him glory and to enjoy Him. How that fleshes itself out in our day-to-day -day looks probably pretty different from the person on your left and your right. That's okay. You as a person have been created. God has placed His image upon you so that you might bring Him glory. God intended in the garden when Adam and Eve walked with him in perfect communion, that's what God intended. God intended for us as a people to walk with him in perfect communion. But we were broken by sin. The sin that Adam committed in the garden inhibited that relationship with him. And our relationship with him is broken subsequently. And just like the people of Jerusalem in Lamentations 1, as Jeremiah is sort of our conduit for seeing what their world looked like, just like that, the restoration that is going to come is going to come at an incredible cost. The destruction of a city pales in comparison to what God was planning to do about 600 years later. All of redemptive history, God is orchestrating this restoration. In 587 BC, God appointed that the Babylonians devastate Jerusalem to demonstrate that there was no limit to his desire to restore his people by pointing, by pointing to the cross of Christ. 
we have this uh, we have this storybook Bible. If you had your child dedicated here, we gave you one. Um, it's called the the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, and the the subtitle is uh, all of all of Scripture or every story is. Uh, let me let me read it. Every story whispers his name. Wow. <laughs> it, it just it sounded like stereo. So it's like, it's like all around me. Who's calling you during church? I don't know. <laughs> they do know who you are, right? <laughs> so this storybook Bible, right? It says uh, probably yeah, probably your children. The storybook Bible, uh, every story whispers his name. When I look at Lamentations 1, and when I start reading the Old Testament, when I start looking at it hard, like, hard, like, looking at it seriously and spending time in it, I can't help but think, think that every, when I'm awakened to the truth of this, this, this blows my mind that every story is not whispering his name, it's screaming his name. And Jesus' work is clearly seen here in Lamentations. Not, not, in the way that, not in the way that this all plays itself out, but in what it's pointing to. What it's, what it's sending us to. God's appointed destruction of a city, the city, his city, where his presence dwelled. He did this in order to achieve restoration. But the restoration that came to Jerusalem after 70 years was a shadow of the restoration to come. So, so in 70 years, all of this would get rebuilt. The walls in Jerusalem would get rebuilt. The temple would be restored. All of those things would happen. And yet, when we look in Ezra chapter 3, when the, when the foundation of the temple is laid, the people of God, the priests and the Levites who had seen the former glory of the temple before it, wept. Because it did not contain the glory of the previous temple. And at that moment, Scripture is clearly saying to us, it's clearly saying to us, that the former glory that they thought that they needed to cling to was not going to be achieved in that, that restoration, but in a restoration to come in Jesus Christ. They wept when they saw that it did not match the glory of the first. And the temple would ultimately be destroyed again, but not in the way we think. Remember what Jesus said. He was talking about his body. He said, this temple will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. When Jesus came into the world, the fullness of God resided in him, not in the temple building, not in a building. And the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus, the temple that had to be destroyed by the wrath of God for final restoration to occur. And so God gave up His Son, this boundless means of restoration. There is no limit on God's passionate pursuit for His people. So much that He would destroy cities and ultimately lay waste to His own Son. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things pertaining to salvation. Okay. So God is committed to the restoration of his people. And that's what this is pointing to for us this morning. So finally then, the second takeaway is just simply this. 
This is kind of an outflow of that idea that we just spoke about. The described city in Lamentations 1 points us to Jesus and the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. Let's talk about that. So this isolation, this oppression, and this restlessness that Jerusalem felt in Lamentations was endured fully by Jesus Christ on the cross. He was isolated. He was isolated so that we could have communion, relationship with God and others. Jesus was oppressed so that we could be free from enslavement to sin and death. He was restless, stripped from his home and endured the weight of sin so that we could rest in the knowledge that we are free. Look at verse 14 of Lamentations 1. Let me read that. The yoke of my transgression is bound by his hands they are knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into his hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. This is verse 28. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the contrast here between a yoke that cannot be borne by the people of Jerusalem? They are unable to stand. Jerusalem herself is unable to stand. And Jesus says, all of that is coming onto me now. The yoke that you have is easy if you are in me. So the fate of Jerusalem in the morning that is found in Jeremiah's account in Lamentations 1 will never, ever be our fate if we are in Christ. Never, ever. There is no scenario where we will bear a yoke so heavy that we cannot stand if we are in Jesus. This isolation and the oppression that is felt and the restlessness have been diverted from us onto Christ. And that's not the end. We see a glorious future then laid out before us. A glorious future in the new Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem here resulted in a rebuilding, but with much less glory, but because it was pointing to a greater glory far in the future, a future where the most precious objects of praise are not walls or buildings or ceremonies or borders or political systems, but rather what is contained in this city that is described in Revelation 21, verses 20, 22 through 27. Let me read that for us. I saw no temple in it. This is the new Jerusalem. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need or the sun or the moon to shine on it. For by the glory of God has illuminated it. And the Lamb is, uh, is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will... And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices an abomination of life shall ever come to it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This city, the new Jerusalem, stands as a direct contrast to the devastated Jerusalem in Lamentations. This Jerusalem is the result of God's 
boundless pursuit of the restoration of his people. Just bathe in that truth. So my question for you this morning then is, do you believe that? Do you know that God gave up his son on your behalf? On your behalf. Over the course of the last few weeks, of we've kind of we've talked about Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 42. We've thought a lot about what it means to be uh, a people who um, who are committed to loving God and to a loving neighbor. We talked a lot about what that means and what that looks like and how that's an overflow of our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so the question coming out of that, and oftentimes for us, is. Do we feel guilt and shame? Do we feel guilt and shame when we're being driven to do the things that God has commanded us to do by our guilt and by our shame? And I'm going to keep driving this home for us. Because if the answer is yes, it's because you've not wrestled with the boundless pursuit of restoration for you. There was still guilt and shame that you needed to feel God if there was still guilt and shame that you needed to feel everyone this morning. If there was still guilt and shame that you needed to feel, God would not have given up his son. But the reality is that he has. And this is good news. This is the good news that comes to us out of Lamentations 1. He subjected his son to this isolation, this oppression, and this restlessness that we all deserve to exist in, so that together we might freely delight in him and exalt him and bring him glory. This is it. There is no end to which God will not go to restore his people that is evidenced in the cross of Christ. Let's pray.